This is Transistor.fm. In this episode of Product People, Amy Hoy gives a deeply personal interview on her past, programming on an Apple IIc, selling her My Little Ponies to buy a Power Mac, and how she ended up building her first products. First, I'd like to tell you about some great sponsors that make Product People possible. If you want more insights into your development process, then I'd recommend you give Sprintly a try. It's going to help you answer questions like, how long will this project take? What's slowing us down? Who has room on the team to take on extra tasks? You and your team can try Sprintly for free by going to www.sprint.ly. You can also thank them on Twitter, at Sprintly. If you're looking for dedicated WordPress hosting that can handle huge traffic spikes, like 40,000 visits in a day, is lightning fast, and has great support, I highly recommend WP Engine. Go to productpeople.tv slash WP Engine to get up to two months free. We have one more premium sponsorship slot available. If you want us to represent your product every week on our podcast, on Twitter, and on our website, visit productpeople.tv slash sponsors. Now on to the show. Hey, this is Justin, and this is Product People, a podcast focused on great products and the people who make them. And today I'm joined by Amy Hoy. Hey, Amy, how's it going? Hey, pretty good. How are you? I'm doing well, doing well. Hey, Amy, I'm sure there's a lot of people who know who you are, but for those uh, who aren't familiar with you and and what you do, can you just give uh, maybe a background on what you're doing right now? Yep, I'm talking to you. (laughs) <laughs> hoping the audio doesn't cut out again yeah. um seriousness sort of uh my husband and i run a software service product called freckle which we started in 2008 and that is half of our income and the other half approximately is uh from my class 30 by 500 and related i teach other people to do what we do what we do business-wise how to create a business a small like sort of um, targeted product that makes money uh, mm-hmm. in the anti-big funded startup kind of way. Mm-hmm. And and some people might be familiar with your husband. Uh, who's he? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I suddenly forget. Um, my husband is Thomas Fuchs. He's sort of a world famous JavaScript programmer. Mm-hmm. Right now, he's a little bit like Elvis. A little later stage in his career. (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't like that. (laughs) Um, Thomas is famous for creating Scriptaculous, which was the first JavaScript animation framework. Um, He was a core committer to Prototype. Uh, He was a core committer to Rails. He is now the producer of Scripty2, which is sort of Scriptaculous Reborn, Um, and Zepto, which is a jQuery replacement. It's API compatible, but it's like a tenth the size or smaller it was aimed at mobile only just a bunch of stuff yeah you know and i think some people would look at you and say you know you guys as a couple are, are kind of like a, a a power couple you've got you know on the <laughs> one side you've got these great bootstrapped businesses and on the other side you've got um you know the uh this de- these development chops um how did how did you get into all of this have you like from were you building stuff from the time you were a kid? What's kind of your your backstory? I started programming probably around seven years old. Uh, I used to spend an inordinate amount of time at the library, kind of crawling around and looking at stuff. And at home, we only had an Apple two C computer. Yeah. And I'm 28, so that was very much out of time. Yeah. Um, and I found some really ancient books on Basic. And I thought, basic, basic, basic. That appeared to be what my computer does. So I took it home <laughs> and I wrote some of the programs from the book and then fiddled around and, and you know, messed with it and had some fun. Um, and I had this 
until I was 17 or 18, I had this cycle of where I would try to get into programming for a little bit. I would get really stuck. There was no one to help me. So I would, uh, and the books, the books really suck. Programming books are awful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I actually had a similar experience trying to teach myself how to program. And I just, I, I'd get going and then I'd get stuck. And then, yeah, same thing. I was like out in the country. There's no one to ask. Um, Yeah. Yeah. When I got to be uh, 17 or 18, I had you know people around me who could help me, and I I learned PHP and SQL and got super into it. Uh, mostly because I was t- I was I had been doing design and app design and web design for a long time. By that point, freelance, mm-hmm. and I was really tired of having to rely on other people to build what I wanted. Yeah. So for me, it was all about the control, and then I kind of really super got into it, and then I discovered Rails, and then. We started our business and now I don't really program anymore because my time is more impactful elsewhere. Yeah. Now, were you always into a business like from the time you were a kid? Yep. Um, Because my mother was a single mother and very, very bad with money. So I was obsessed with money. The only way I got a newer computer was because I figured out how to come put the money on my own and how to get one that I could afford off Usenet. Oh, no way. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I was 12. I bought myself a power, uh, granted, an older power PC, uh, power, power, P, power Mac uh, 7200. It was $1,200. I was 13. I had come up with the money via like a year-long strategy. <laughs> wow. And where was this? Where did, you, where did you grow up? Suburban Maryland. Suburban Maryland. Wasteland, yeah. What, so what's it like? I, I've never been to Maryland. What like what? It, when you say suburban Maryland and then wasteland, what what's that like to grow up there? Well, everyone where I lived was an asshole. <laughs> Not joking. Yeah. I have some stories that could curl your would curl your toes, but it's just not interesting to tell. Um, the only place to get coffee like out and about before Starbucks came to the shiny new strip mall. Um, yeah. The only thing our town was known for was the mall, and it yeah. wasn't even a very good mall. Um, before Starbucks came, the only place you could get coffee was at either a gas station or one of those sub shops that didn't have a name, which is say like subs and pizza. Yeah, yeah. And none of it was good. Yeah. Yeah, it was just everything. It was I don't know. It was just crummy. Yeah. And everything sucked. <laughs> and so. So what, did you have any business mentors growing up? Like when you were a kid and you were, you, nope. so I was how did all you, alone. How, how did you learn? Books. Like I said, I spent a lot of time at the library. I read everything. Yeah. yeah. And was there a particular book back then? Do you remember a particular book? Like what was the first book that you read that you were like, yes, like I want to do this. I want to do business. I want to make money. I want to figure this stuff out. That is a good question. I always wanted to uh, make money. Probably the, the first business type book that I remember was Spin Selling. Okay. I must have read that when I was 13 or 14, by which point I had, let's see. Nope, that was a little bit later. I started a website, a, a daily Mac news and opinion website, I guess when I was 15, that made money off advertising. But oh, really? That, yeah. Um, what was it called? Sold, it was called the Daily Mac. Okay. Yeah, I ran that for years. Huh. Um, I always was kind of hustling to try to get money. Yeah. So I don't remember a single point when I started. When I was, I guess, 12 or 13, maybe, oh, no, it was middle school. It must have been 12. Um, I would sell, I we got a CD burner for some reason. I had mm-hmm. a Mac by then. Yeah. And I would burn mixed CDs for people at school and charge them money for it. And to, to buy that Power Mac, I sold all my My Little Ponies and a whole bu- big bucket, big bucket for $80. I sold a bunch of my toys in the yard sale. Yeah, yeah. So I was just always into it because there was no other way that I was going to get money. Like, yeah. The money for anything. And, and were you like, were you, um, were you as confident back then as you are now? Were, were you a confident kid? I mean, not to the degree that I am now, but let's just say that I was always contrary. <laughs> people, every, 
my my parents and everyone else spent their my entire life telling me I couldn't do stuff, and they never seemed to notice that every time they told me I couldn't, I would do it anyway, and they never like adjusted their viewpoint. Interesting. So, so you they would say you can't do that, and you'd say yes, I can, and you'd go out and do it. Yeah, and they would never seem to notice. My parents literally told me you will end up working at Seven Eleven. Interesting. And for people who don't know what Seven Eleven is, it's like a quickie mart. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and so and but when they said that, that didn't depress you. It just made you feel like you wanted to not do that. So when you listen to advice or opinions, you have to consider the source. My parents had made a dog's breakfast of their entire lives, so I was like, "Well, your advice didn't get you very far." So, mm-hmm. and you don't know me clearly. Yeah. Because I rustled up twelve hundred dollars to buy myself a power Mac when I was like thirteen. So I yeah. just was like, it just rolled off me. I didn't believe it. Yeah. I wonder, like, because that kind of determination, I I remember being a kid and just loving business. Like, I would, like, stay up late. There's this business show on uh, CBC, Canadian television, called Venture, which was all, it was at 11 o'clock at night. It was, like, all stories (laughs) about people that had started businesses. And I remember being really young and loving that show and loving business, but I was so shy so I remember like trying to sell things and I was just, I was so, so shy and not confident at all. Were you, would you consider, like, were you more confident than that? Would, would you like, were you fine with selling and trying to pitch people things? And um, I was certainly really socially awkward in certain situations, but not in others. It wasn't universal. I guess when I wanted people to like me, I felt super awkward back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and and didn't know when to but to start a conversation. I would interrupt people, but I wouldn't mean to. And it was just I would say long jokes that no one would get, and then I would feel awful and blah blah. That yeah. was super. I was super awkward in a lot of ways. But I guess uh, I had no problem talking to the lady who bought all my My Little Ponies, for yeah. example. That I recall, I did car washes and all kinds of stuff. Um, so I guess not. I guess it was sort of uh, depending. Yeah. I wasn't shy talking to adults. I think yeah. it was other kids mostly. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can remember like trying to go door to door and selling like, uh, like, uh, you know, like gifts out of a catalog yeah. and just wanting to do it so badly and just being so shy. Uh, did you ever try to do that? Go door to door and sell stuff? I, I did some fundra- uh, fundraising for my school. Mm-hmm. We sold like fancy tissue paper and stuff. Um, but in sort of a pattern that would define a lot of my life until the past, I don't know, five years, six years, I would, uh, we, we, the one time I did it, I mean, we got all the stuff delivered to us personally after the sale was over and we were supposed to go distribute it. And I never did. <laughs> I did not follow. Through. Fulfillment was the problem. Fulfillment was, yeah. Follow up. Follow yeah. up was my problem. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So let's fast forward a little bit. You, you talked about, um, you know, being 18 and, and had you started freelancing at that point? Oh yeah. I, I had been freelancing since I was 14 or 15. Um, I dropped out of high school in ninth grade. Oh, are you serious? Yeah. You dropped out of high school in ninth grade Yeah. and, and just started working, doing your own business right away. I was already doing some stuff, but yeah, I mean, wow. it was there for me. Yeah. <laughs> And, and were you, was this all stuff on the web? Yep. Yep. When I was 12, I started a website that I called Kids on the Internet, and it got in .NET Magazine. And I got my first freelance job when I was 12. Uh, I was invited to write for, um, oh, gosh, what was it? Uh, it was some sort of short-lived media company by Turner Broadcasting, some sort of, like, hip online site that they wanted to, like, compete with suck.com. I can't remember the name of it. Okay. Anyway, I get paid a hundred bucks and it was my first experience being edited brutally. <laughs> I, I had left a comment on some blog post, uh, like some pre-blog, but journal news post thing. They had comments. I left a comment and they were like, yeah, would you like to write an article? And that was, that was the start for me. But I've been doing, I started doing web design 14, 15. Wow. And were you building, when was your first product? Like when was the first time you can remember building a product? 
how do you define product? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I guess it would be like something that you've made that I, I don't know. That's a good, <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> so here's some of the things, here's some of the things that I did for money. Um, I wrote, I guess I was 13 or 14. I wrote a little, a little book on, um, internet marketing and I sold two copies on Yahoo classified <laughs> it ended up costing more to print and bind than it did that I made money off it. So I, I abandoned that. What was the um, book called? Internet marketing whiz tips. Oh, awesome. <laughs> yeah. And, um, I, let's see for a while between like 14 and 16, I would resell Ikea lamps on eBay. Really? Because yeah, that was before Ikea was, uh, shipping stuff from their catalog. Okay. Yeah. So the only way you could get it if you weren't near an Ikea was to buy it online. And I would buy like $5 paper lamps and they would sell for like 15 bucks or a bit more. And I would make six to about 600 to $1,000 a month doing that. Wow. Um, and I, let's see, what else did I do? Um, I mean, I used to rake in between 600 and $1,000 a month on my advertising on my website, my Mac website mm -hmm. back when you, I, I mean, I ran a script on my own server that served up ads and reported CPCs. Yeah. Um, let's see, what else did I do? Man, I wrote like, books you... for a publisher when I was 16, but the publisher uh, got bought by Prima. No, it was Prima. They got bought by somebody else and they dissolved it. They never published the book. Wow. What was that book on? Oh, it was a stupid formula book. It was iBook Fast and Easy. Okay. Yeah. I was, it was $5,000. They're like, it's not like a real book book. They pay you to follow their formula and, and fill out the details. Gotcha. And um, what else did I do? The first real, more like adult product I made, I did um, some Photoshop web design stuff for Toby from Shopify before okay. Shopify existed. No way. The Rails community. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. And um, I recorded a video of how I did it and he paid me extra for that. And then I asked, Hey, do you mind if I sell this video to other people? And I, I sold, I don't know, 15 copies for about like several, a couple thousand dollars of revenue. Huh. And how old were you then when you, when you did that, your first kind of that, that video product? Mm, 21. Wow. So 20, still 20, 20, I think 20. Fairly young. Yeah. I mean, I felt pretty old by that point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and, 21. and when did you, was that when you kind of realized, cause now you've, you, you've kind of become known as this person that, that says, you know, building products is where it's at. Like that's the best way to, to run a great business. Uh, is that around that point when you started to realize how powerful, products could be? I did just tell you I published a, a little mini book when I was like 15, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so did you yeah. realize that right from the beginning? Oh, I, I knew it from the beginning. Yeah. Huh. I, when Basecamp came out in 2004, I was 19 and I had found rails after Basecamp because Basecamp, there was a beta that Jason Freed used to be part, or I think was Jason Freed, one of the 37 signals guys was part of this design community I was part of, invite only. And I heard about Basecamp because he was talking about the beta. Mm -hmm. And so I, I had checked it out. And at this point, I had been designing complex software, um, web-based software, and developing it as well. And I looked at that, and I thought, wow, that's a really great idea. Um, I could do better. And I started mapping out the plans of how I could make it more efficient uh, as a user interface. And those plans just sat in my note-taking app for, you know, forever. Mm -hmm. um, so five, five years and change later uh, is when we shipped our first software as a service. So I didn't do anything with it. I knew it. I knew that was the way to go, but yeah. I didn't do it. And and what was holding you back? Discipline. Yeah, the willingness to stop doing other stuff and do that instead. Gotcha. And what were you doing a lot of client work at the time? Yep. Exclusively. Yeah. So even though you, you kind of realized at an early age, like that there was 
a lot of potential in products. Um, it sounds like, you, you know, like if for paying the bills, you were still on the, the kind of the consulting treadmill for a while. Absolutely. For a long time. I mean, I consulted from like 14 till like 25. Mm -hmm. So it's a long time. And it is, why do you think it was so hard? Like, because you had that realization of, you know, I could sell products. Um, why was it, like, why is the, the, the discipline of building and releasing a product different than, for example, just working with clients? There's no one to answer to. Hmm. If, if you are not good at structuring your time, um, <laughs> if you aren't good at managing your own stupid emotions, you will wait um, until there's a deadline or your client will be unhappy and you use that as a kind of a whip to make yourself go. And if you try to do that with products, well, there's no whip, right? Because you're building something new. There's no one who cares if you do it or not. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's, it's just emotional immaturity. It's, it's a matter of trying to control your behavior by setting up external requirements. I'm like, you can set your own deadlines for your own product, but you know that they're not real. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so what was the difference? Like what happened between, you know, in that five years from, you know, you taking, seeing Basecamp and then shipping, was it Freckle that you shipped first? Yep. Okay. So what, yep. what happened in between there that allowed you to finally get Freckle off the ground and out the door? So there's a couple things that happened. Um, I got totally screwed on a contract and got really sick and ended up having to take a job because I had spent all my money. Um, and I had that job and then I had another job and then I had another job and I really didn't like it. It was nice to have, you know, money on tap basically. Um, but in there somewhere near the end, I worked with say Frank on color wars. Oh, do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I well, was part of color wars. I, I worked, I did the designs for color wars and that was huh. fun. It was really fun to ship something because I don't know if, I mean, do you do consult? You've done consulting, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. So how many of the projects you worked on as a consultant ever shipped? Oh man. Basically none, right? Yeah. Like smaller, yeah. smaller projects. I, you can usually get those out the door, but anything that was like bigger in scope, um, a lot of those never did ship. Yeah. It's just one giant whack fest. Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> I had the same problem at my jobs. And it, I, that's when I realized it wasn't my fault that the people, quote unquote, in charge had this, um, these emotional issues where they would never let something be finished and get it out the door. And I was just up to here. I had spent 10 years working and I had so little to show for it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I worked on some amazing stuff and I could only ever show people screenshots, right? Cause it never got shipped. So, um, or it did, but it was unrecognizable by that point. What, why is that? Like, cause that's the joke. Like I, I just retweeted something yesterday that said, uh, our project's at 90% done. So we're halfway there. Um, like why, why do, especially in big organizations, why do, is it so hard to get anything out the door? It's not big organizations. It's all because they're made of people mm -hmm. <laughs> and because people are all emotionally immature. <laughs> so you think um, it's, it's emotion. It has to do with emotion. A hundred percent. Really? A hundred percent. And I, let me, let me finish my story and then I'll, I'll tell you my theories. I sure. think about this a lot. Yeah. So I could talk forever. <laughs> okay. Let's do it. So I worked on color wars and I was like, fucking a, I can ship something and this is fun and people use it. And then, um, later that year I had been, uh, working on, I've been using Twitter. I was, I saw Twitter back when it was TWTTR and the logo was that like creepy sweaty logo. Yeah. Yeah. That dripping green of, thing. It was so creepy. <laughs> and I signed up and I was like, eh, I don't get it. And then I like deleted my account. Like I was probably in the first thousand users and I deleted my account much to yeah. my chagrin. I knew the guys who were working on it. Right. Cause I, yeah. I knew them from the rails community. We were pretty tight knit back then. Yeah. Um, and then later when it became a thing, checking it out and there was like stuff on it and to see what people tweeted. Uh, it was really interesting because of the, the kind of data that people tweeted was stuff that would never get blogged. Mm -hmm. It was very ephemeral. Mostly people tweeted about stuff that happened to them or thoughts or things like that. Not, it's not like today where it's, you know, 80% links. Yeah. It wasn't 
before it become like another content aggregation tool. Yeah. Um, it was really interesting and insightful. You got this little micro peeks inside people's psyches. I thought it was amazing. And I had seen this uh, live journal visualization project called We Feel Fine. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that? Yeah. And I yeah. thought that was just epic. And I'd always been a fan of like Tufty's books and the information visualization. I mean, my thing my whole life has been making things understandable. Mm-hmm. Like communicating, really communicating and teaching. It's been my like my number one passions. And so I thought, well, I could do something, we could do something really amazing with this data and Twitter and they're not doing anything. So Thomas and I had a meeting with uh, all the top people at Twitter in February, was it? 2007. Okay. Yeah. February 2007. And they said, I told, proposed them what we would do. And they loved it. And the main purpose of the meeting was because Thomas was going to help them uh, make their JavaScript faster. Because that was back when it was so slow to type in the web app that your typing lagged. Yeah. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So Thomas was like, I can fix your JavaScript performance issues in two days. And they're like, that's great. And then we heard from them a month later and said, so we just, we said, um, we just can't get it together to hire you. Mm-hmm. And I was so confused by that because it, Twitter at this point was 15 people and they couldn't figure out the political wrangling to hire somebody to come in for two days to fix all their JavaScript problems. Yeah. It's not because they decided to do it internally because those performance issues and the size of the JavaScript and the loading, that persisted for years, right? Yeah. So I was like, fuck, I never get to do this thing. Yeah. With the visualization of the tw- tweets. And then one day, I was lying in bed. I've been thinking about it for a long time, like in the shower. I would imagine all the features and stuff that we would do to make the information visualization really neat and how it would be different than we feel fine and, and how what we would share with it and all. And one day I just woke up and I was like, why would I wait for them to hire me to do it? I can just do it. Mm-hmm. And so we did. We did. I was going to actually do it using the JavaScript, uh, the, the the search API, which outputs used to output, I don't know, RSS, and I was going to then convert it using a gateway to JSON. I was just going to suck it in and yeah. do the twist story, this PPM twist story. Um, but we ended up using a Thomas decided that that was not the best thing, and so he came up with a, a structure that we use Ruby and a cron job and blah blah. Still mostly JSON though. Um, and, so on and so forth, and made to a story, and people fucking loved it. Like, yeah, we got everywhere. We got in the Wall Street Journal. You know, we got, we got all over the place. That that is when to a story is when I originally heard about you, because I, I was trying yeah, to think you like a lot of people. Like, how did I first even? And to me, this is really interesting. Like how people discover other people, or you know, yeah. and because I like I discovered. 37 signals because my boss said you should read getting real. Um, and that's an interesting kind of gateway into that whole world. Yep. Right. Uh, yep. and I learned about you and Thomas through to story and it was literally like I had checked out to a story once and then I went back another time and it was probably like the fifth time I said, who's behind this? Like, what is yep. like, and then it's just like Amy Hoy and Thomas. And it's like, I don't know you guys from Adam. And like, I, but once you start like, you know, digging in and, and uh, you know, then you start following people's blogs and then, so that whole thing is interesting to me that sometimes, you know, you can release a project and, you know, people hear about it and then, yep. you know, there's this kind of continuation afterwards. Yep. Yep. And actually it made us a lot of money. <laughs> really? Yeah. How did, so- how did it make money? I will tell you. I can't so, wait. Uh, in 2007, when we did this, <laughs> I was working at LimeWire. Okay. And it was in many ways the perfect nerd job, but uh, the CEO who owned us looked at us as his toy. Now, LimeWire used to make quite a lot of money, mm-hmm. um, and I'm therefore made a lot of money, and I had profit sharing. And the actual LimeWire JavaScript client team, they were totally dysfunctional. But I wasn't part of them. We were on a different floor. We were doing this cool social artist network web thing. It was going to be really neat. Um, and he kept – because we couldn't, didn't finish it in like two weeks. He kept coming down and changing stuff. And I found out later that I could have just ignored him and just kept – I'll be like, sure, Mark. I could have ignored him and just done whatever I wanted to do because yeah. no one ever got fired from LimeWire, like no matter how egregious their behavior <laughs> was. 
Yeah. And I wish they had done that. I would have enjoyed it more. But I cared too much. I was constantly trying to manage him and then the new guy he hired who sucked. Yeah. Yeah, it's just it was just driving me crazy. So um I had ended up taking a month long trip to New Zealand in two thousand seven to give a user interface design workshop at Webstock. And they paid. So I um I got paid for the trip. They paid me, I don't know, six thousand New Zealand dollars plus they paid for my airfare. And then I had like money to hang out. So um I mean it, it was basically like a free trip. Yeah. Far, far away. So I talked to Thomas into going down with me. It's very early in our relationship. And we spent a month down there. And uh I was I've got my timeline screwed up here. Sorry. Go back. This was after Twist Story. This was after Twist Story by Twist Story was like May or June 2007. This was, I guess, the first. Yes, this is the first few months of 2008. This was February 2008. Okay. And had they had they heard of you through Twist Story? Was that kind of the driving force behind them wanting you to speak? You know, I never asked. It's a good question. So. Um, sorry, back backpedaling. I, yeah. So Twist Story was like spring of 2007. I quit LimeWire in September 2007 because it was just driving me batty. Mm-hmm. Just absolutely crazy. It was like living in Dilbert. So like <laughs> lots more money and parties and money are really cool. It was it was wonderful but awesome. Like I've been ruined for any job ever. Google yeah. tried to recruit me and I was like, well, can I do all this? And they're like, no. <laughs> I've never working at Google, but nevertheless, quit. I quit and I formed a consulting company with my friend John, and we did user interface design. And we okay. were working for big clients like uh, Bear Stearns and a bunch <laughs> of startups that never fucking shipped anything. Like there's just one client. Every time we'd go back there, they would have fewer people because they just couldn't get it together. Oh no. Yeah. Well, I don't. <laughs> I don't. I don't feel too sorry for them. It's a long story, but uh, it's their own stupidity, really. Mm-hmm. Um. But so I've been doing that for like six months and then we went on this trip to New Zealand and New Zealand in 2007 had no fucking internet. (laughs) (laughs) People had internet in their homes and it was slow, but it was, it was functional. But like you would expect the hotel would say, Oh yeah, we have Wi-Fi," and you get there and it would be like 300 bytes per second or not working at all. And they're like, sorry, it's run by a third party. We can't do anything about it. Nor will they call them (laughs) to fix it. So I was basically offline for a month. Wow. Poor John had to hold down the port without me. Um, yeah. On another project that would never ship, right? The guy wanted like 80 designs for the same page. And um, <laughs> I was so relieved not to be doing that. And having all that time off, I was like, fucking hey, I'm never going to do this again. I hate it. Mm-hmm. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate consulting. Um, and so I, I realized I had to, I had to get, stop. I had to stop. Mm-hmm. So I came back and kind of started formulating my plans for withdrawal. But by that point, um, Twistory had gotten the eyes of a lot of marketing people who are mostly really obnoxious. Mm-hmm. But I heard from Undercurrent. That was a really nice digital agency um, and a guy who, who later became a friend. And they wanted to repurpose Twistory, like a, a tweet stream of certain keywords you could switch through for the tennis uh, channel for some sort of tennis event. I forget which one. Okay. And that led to more work and more work. So we next time, by a year later, we were doing work for like Pepsi and Ford and a bunch of other Thomas Thomas and I. Yeah, and they were like licensing Twistory for their own kind of purpose. Yep. And we built really huge, really interesting, really smart, natural kind of natural language processing type things for Pepsi for South by Southwest, which was just epic. Huh. And Pepsi was a great client. Yeah. All the other people were terrible clients, and so by the end of it, about another year of that. I mean, we brought in, you know, several hundred thousand dollars in consulting, but I was just like, no more. I can't do this anymore either. Yeah. <laughs> so by that point, we'd, we'd launched Freckle. Um, we launched Freckle in December 2008. So I came back from New Zealand, knew I had to quit. That was, we got back in March. We were packing up my house and, and arranging our wedding. And um, and there I had come up with the idea for Freckle, the concept for Freckle, shall we say. Mm-hmm. and sketched out the user interface and we started building it that summer while we were moving back and forth between Philadelphia and Vienna and packing up and doing our wedding. Um, and then after our wedding, we got really serious about it and we shipped it in December. Wow. Yeah. 
So, so how long did it take to build the initial version of Freckle? Uh, it took, I mean, approximately like one to two days a week for three months. Huh. One to two days a week for three months. Yeah, I once figured out that it was about the equivalent of watching Buffy all seven seasons. Yeah. Plus a few extra for each of us who worked on it. And and by this point, were you like more disciplined? Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. We shipped. I was like, there's nothing that's going to stop me. I'm not going to have another project that doesn't ship. So we shipped it without password reset. We shipped it without the code that would lock you out. Um, if your credit card didn't work after the 30-day trial and all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. And nope. How, how much did working with other people help too? Like, was that, does that play into the discipline of getting a product out the door? Um, so we had two partners uh, who had their own consulting company. They worked with us to get the first version of the story out the door. And that was great. Um, sorry, Freckle. <laughs> yeah, first version of Freckle out the door. Yeah. First version of Freckle out the door. But afterwards, it got the the teamwork did not work. So, but during the process of actually building it and shipping it, I mean, it was still me who was like, nope, 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 not going to do that. Nope, can't ship without <laughs> it. Nope, nope, nope. Yeah. I tried to rule it with an iron fist because when you're in it, it's so much easier to say, oh, we have to do this, we have to do that. I'm like, no. Yeah. You do not have to have the code. What what's going to happen if we ship without the code that locks people out after yeah. 30 days? If their tr- if their credit card doesn't work, people might get a few free days of work, or we can fix it in the next 30 days before the trials end. It's like why? Yeah. Why would you not ship without that? Yeah, which is different than like uh you know sometimes people will say like the pure kind of uh, developer mindset where they're often thinking about air, like we got to cover all the bases. Um, but the person that's saying no is a, on a very different, that's a, almost the polar opposite where the, you know, you're saying, well, no, what's the minimum thing we could release? We don't need to cover all the bases for this, this first version. Right. Exactly. And, and uh, actually, I think I, I've got a ton of other stuff I could, <laughs> I could talk about there, but I think, I think we'll leave that there for a second. Um one thing I want to make sure we get we get into um, in this part of the show because uh, we'll have another episode next week with with more. But um, how did you get into teaching and um, the thirty by five hundred class? Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I could. Thank you for asking. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I mentioned earlier that I've always been really into teaching, and I don't remember like why or where that started. It was always something I was really interested in. And I started off teaching people about um, Mac stuff and tech stuff with my website, uh, Daily Mac, back when I was a teenager. I had read David Pogue's columns and stuff and I thought, that's amazing, I wanna be like that. And I don't see why people act as if this tech stuff is super hard to, understand and so I would write a series of articles explaining what cache is and what the you know the bus is in terms of computer hardware yeah and you know what how memory works and stuff like that as well as teaching you know how to do stuff yeah this is something that was really interesting to me I guess teaching someone's like hacking their brain really yeah. um so uh, it's always been something I've been interested in doing and I, I always am very analytical about what I do so when I had seen all of these projects that I worked on as a consultant fail and fail and fail and fail, I had been thinking about why, why is that? And then I was determined not to make those mistakes with Freckle. And we also, right after we shipped Freckle, we shipped um, a, our first ebook together, JavaScript Performance Rocks. Yes. Beta version. That was in February, right before we went down to um, New Zealand again. So we did two things at once. Pretty epic while consulting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, a year later, the, the end of 2009, Freckle was growing, but slowly we had these problems with our, our um, former partners. We had to buy them out. I don't remember exactly which happened in one order, mm-hmm. by the way, but somewhere in there. 
and we had this hell project with four that was supposed to be a two-week rush project. I had a bad feeling about it. We took it on. Um, it ended up being two months of hell. Oh, no. And so, yeah, maybe we we got paid, you know, like 50 grand for it. Mm-hmm. But I was just like, fuck, I don't want to do this anymore. Mm-hmm. But Freckle wasn't earning enough money to live off of by, by far. It was like, I don't know, six grand a month or something by that point. Yeah. So the, I had to figure out classic- a way the classic product problem, right? Like you've got yep. something that's kind of growing slowly, but at the same point, you've got to feed the kids and pay the mortgage and all that stuff. Yep. Yep. And our apartment and stuff in Vienna were not cheap. Yeah. Um, but see, and I've seen this happen to a lot of people. They'll look at that and they'll go, well, I just can't quit. Mm-hmm. But that's not my way. <laughs> I love quitting things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I quit everything I can, can possibly can. Yeah. Um, and I was like, well, fuck it. I'm just gonna have to figure out another way to come up with come up with the money. Uh, so I mean, we had sold the ebook that made quite a bit, but it was a trickle. Like it made quite a bit in aggregate. And I thought, well, what do I know, and what can I do that people really, really need? And I don't usually recommend people start with themselves because they're not disciplined and more objective like I am. I'm just a very analytical person. So I don't tell people, look at what you've got. But that's what I did. Mm. I had been always observing the problems people were having mm-hmm. also. Um, I call that safari. It's another story. But I realized that I knew so many people. One set, they were getting like sucked from one startup job to another and or consulting or whatever and they hated it and they could do amazing things but like me of several years ago they had everything they worked on got shat on or 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 fucked over or or canceled Mm -hmm. um or never shipped on on the other hand i knew a lot of people who wanted to do products but thought that they had to go be funded they had to like get funding that was like their priority they didn't understand there was an alternative and then they also didn't know what to do other than that and they didn't know how to do it they didn't know how to market or sell anything they had no idea to figure out what people wanted to buy yeah so i said all right well i know having sold the um ebook and having sold freckle to you know hundreds of people and everything we had done had made money so i thought all right well here's the intersection and I'm gonna teach a class. And my friend Alice came over uh, for New Year's to Vienna, and I had decided to quit by then. Yeah. And uh, we laid out all the questions and problems people had trying to do what I do, and we sort of outlined a class. And I started selling that. Um, first, I did a three-hour teleconference that I charged 100 bucks for. Yeah. To see if anyone was remotely interested, and I did not launch it the way I teach people to launch things. It was very much, I announced it on my blog the week before and I got nine people and I went through some stories and some lessons that I'd learned and the number one feedback was more. So um, that's how I knew that I should do something something bigger. Yeah. And And so that was the first year of hustle class, which became 3,500. 3,500. And and tell people that what's the significance of like, what is the significance of the numbers 30 by 500? What is that? First, never name a product like that. <laughs> I constantly say it wrong. I trip over my own tongue. It's awful. <laughs> it seems so clever at the time. 30 by 500 is a formula that I used to tell people in like the startup world that would make their jaws just drop. Yeah. They never thought of it that way. What it stands for is if you can sell 500 people something for $30 each month, just 500 people a month, whether that's recurring or not, that's $180,000 in revenue a year. Yeah. That's a lot of money. Yeah. And to reach 500 people on the internet, or if you use subscriptions to maintain 500 people on the internet month to month on average across the entire internet is not hard. I mean, it's hard, but it's not difficult. Yeah. I guess. Um, and it is very achievable and you don't have to take on the world and you don't need funding or whatever. You can do it on your own and $180,000 in gross, even though you'll be taxed at a higher rate in most countries, mm-hmm. is a great income. Yeah. Yeah. I remember hearing that formula and just kind of feeling like for the first time, like, whoa, like that, that's doable. Like I could, I know how hard it is to like get a customer and then get another one and build it up to 500. But I just thought that, that is, that's actually doable. Yes. Uh, 
uh, before we close off this this section here, um, you've you've recently changed that class. What what's going on with the class now, and and when's the next one coming up? Thank you for asking. <laughs> I love these softball questions. Um, so the class up till now has been three or four months long, and honestly, it was always a lot of theory. I love theory, and I wanted to impart the theory to people so that they would understand how to look at the world differently. Mm -hmm. But most people aren't like me. Alex keeps telling me, my, my teaching partner, he's like, Amy, you're an anomaly. <laughs> That's what my Twitter bio says. I put the Amy and anomaly. Yeah. Uh, Alex came up with that, and he also came up with crazy charity. But he's right, right. Um, I would love to read a theory book that I wrote basically for 3500 mm -hmm. but that's not the way to be able to learn most effectively. So the last class, we added a bunch on habits and motivation, and that made a huge improvement in people's follow through. And we we ditched a lot of the theory and taught people through exercises so they could figure out the theories for themselves and see the patterns themselves. And that has made a huge improvement. But four months long is too long. It's too long for me. Um, it's too long for the students. People are so tired by the end. Um, and it's just not effective for that. So despite the fact that 30 by 500 brought in um, a lot of money last year, $400,000. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, which I shared with Alex. Yeah. Um, we are not doing it like that ever again because of the outcomes, because of the exhaustion, and because um, I want more people to be able to get the information that they need at the time when they need it and the level that they need it, that mm -hmm. they can use it. So we're doing two different things. Well, th actually, we're doing like four different things this year. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing was our launch roundtable. That was a three-hour online conference, all online, with three of my students who had just launched products. It was all about the launch sequence, mm -hmm. how to build up momentum to launch to sales. That was all it was about. It was three hours. It was like 200 bucks or less. So that's something that people who, who aren't ready or interested nor even need a four-month class can get benefit from. Mm -hmm. And then we're doing Bacon BizComp, which is the end of May, which is a very small, intimate bootstrapping products conference so that we can learn from each other and, and meet other people who are doing what we do and have a sense of community and start to build that. That's open to anyone. Um, and whether you do 30 by 100 or not, yeah. none of the speakers, none of the, the headline speakers are 30 by 100 people. I made that, did that on purpose. Um, and then June 8th and 9th, we're doing a two-day ultra-intense 100% like exercise focused uh, boot camp of the following 30 by 100 approaches. Uh, writing pitches, because if you have the greatest thing in the world but you can't get people interested in it or sell it, it's like it doesn't exist. So yeah. we're doing what I call pitch first development, which is you write the pitch, kind of like the back of a, the book promise. Like you pick up a book on business or something, you read the back and the back tells you what you're gonna get out of it mm -hmm. and why you should read it. And I suspect that a lot of authors write that before they write their book. There's yeah. It creates goal and interest point for your readers, potential readers, and it also creates the goal posts for you as the developer. So we're going to start with pitches. And the stuff from pitches comes from data. So we're going to teach people how to do the customer data mining that I do called mm -hmm. Safari. Um, and then we're going to show them how to, to pivot that into the marketing strategy because it all comes from the same data and um, how to use that to structure the product itself in two days. Yeah, wow. So we're not going to cover launching. We're not going to cover like habits, you know, that kind of stuff. It's really razor focused, but two days, full days, all online. So anyone can attend. Um, and that's going to be $1,500. Okay. So for reference, the last 3500 was 2450. This is 1500. The next longer 3500, we're going to have a four week or possibly five week intense thing where you do like a, like training, like, like physical training, you're basically going to be doing 30 by 100 for two hours a day for five weeks or four weeks. More of a so traditional class. The, exactly. You get the whole process. Yeah. Um, and that's going to be more like 4,500. Yeah. But if you attend the two-day boot camp, you'll get $500 of credit for the longer class if you decide you need it. But I feel like a lot of people who are self-motivated, um, who are, you know, responsible for their own, um, like, meeting their own deadlines and stuff, who, who move themselves forward, who yeah. already have that skill, yeah. um, can get 80% of what they need out of the two-day boot camp, and the rest is easily learned elsewhere. 
Yeah. So and I want to reach more. The people. longer classes like would really benefit anyone who really wants kind of like just the 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 habit of going to class every day, doing the assignments, having that kind of daily um you know, uh what's the word? Practice. Yeah, daily practice. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. Where where can people if they want to sign up for when's the boot camp coming up? The boot camp is June eighth and ninth. Okay. And we haven't officially announced it yet. This is actually the most we've said publicly oh, wow. uh, so far. But by the time this podcast is out, I will have a blog post up on unicornfree.com and you can sign up to be invited there. Uh, you put your name in the email list and then you know, you'll be the first to hear. I only really do launches to my email list anymore because yeah. that fills up the seats. So if people want to uh, get on your list, go to unicornfree.com and, yep. uh, and sign up there. Thanks for listening to part one with Amy Hoy. If you've enjoyed this, stay tuned for next week because Amy's back for part two. You can follow Amy on Twitter. She's at Amy Hoy. You can follow me, Justin, on Twitter at MIJustin. You can follow the show on Twitter as well at Product People TV. If you like the show, please give us a review in iTunes. It's as easy as clicking five stars and it really helps the show get noticed. Until next time, thanks for listening. Podcast hosting is provided by Transistor.fm. They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to Transistor.fm slash Justin and get 15% off your first year.